Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. It's short track racing is where all racing started. I mean, it's even the NASCAR world started short track racing back in the day. And we just want to tell a great story. to, And to, not a story. We want to tell factual guidelines. Hear the unfiltered, honest stories of how grassroots racers have and can achieve their racing goals. Fast car to NASCAR. Hosted by NASCAR driver Mike Wallace. On the Speed Sport Podcast Network. Once again, we welcome you to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Strap yourself in. Pull those belts tight as we take it uh, from short tracks across America to super speedways and everything in between. And Mike, the cool thing about this show is we're going to bring in the occasional guest. And we have a guest on the line today that is going to blow you away. I am so excited because my good friend Tony Stewart, Smoke, whatever... uh the, the name needs to be of the day. Tony, how you doing? I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, great. Well, we're, we're trying to bring to all the listeners around the country that everybody knows who Tony Stewart is. I mean, you're famous, world-renowned. But who was Tony Stewart before he was Tony Stewart? You know, the yep. one, one thing we know, you were born May 20th, 1971. And how yeah, do we so- move forward from there? I, uh, I grew up in a small town in southern Indiana, so I, I grew up in Columbus, Indiana, which is the headquarters for Cummins Engine Company. So before, and I'll kind of bounce back, I guess, but you know the significance of Cummins was it made me a Mark Martin fan because it was on, on Mark Martin's car. But, um, but I grew up, it was, I don't know, at the time I was born, I think there were around 35,000 people in town, and now it's about 48,000 people in Columbus. But... Uh, Indiana is a state that is deep in racing routes. Um, obviously, the biggest track in Indiana, uh, most famous, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and, and it literally is about an hour, five-minute drive to half. But um, literally, there's almost a hundred. There were almost a hundred racetracks at one time in, in the state of Indiana. That's everything from go kart tracks uh, to sprint car, late model tracks, IRP. Um, where they do NHRA drag racing, um, all the way up to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So, it, it, I was around nonstop, and uh, my father, before I was born, 
uh, was a, a traveling salesman. So we worked for a, a medical company and, and had a region that had to service. And But my father was the one that actually got me involved in racing. And, uh, you know, he had been in a racer himself, but just more of a recreation. He never had the budget to, to do anything big time. And I, I don't know. He, my dad's still 83 years old and still drives a race car. He runs a three-quarter midget in our series in Indiana, uh, the All-Star EQ series. And uh, judging by how he drives now, I'm pretty sure he wasn't going to be a professional back then either. <laughs> but, you haven't told him that, have you? <laughs> oh, every time. Every time I go there, I'm like, God, I'm like, do you realize how much I had to overcome to get this good? To <laughs> <laughs> get to where I could just make a living driving these things. But my, my father was, is really the sole motivation and driving force of why I got to, I mean, when I was a little kid, I remember my sister and I, uh, and when, when I was born, the first memories I have of him in racing, he was, uh, running SCCA running, uh, uh, old triumph. Uh, and I'm not even sure what the class was that he was entered in, but I don't remember him running that, but three or four times, but, um, you know, he, he had a lot of fun with it and. Then, uh, literally, I, I remember he came home one day and had a, a yard cart in the back of a pickup truck, and my mom was throwing a fit, going, what is that? And uh, that's what I ended up driving around for two years in the back in the backyard of our house. And um, finally, my mom, I guess, made the decision after her backyard was destroyed, said, this, this thing has to go, first of all, but either put him in a, a real racing cart or get him out of this thing. So uh, that's how I ended up in a in a full size racing car at the age of eight with my dad. Well, that's an incredible story. I lo- I love hearing that because you know we've all grown up somewhere in racing somehow. But you were just dad. Dad got you into it right away. Then is what you're saying. Yeah, and my mom was very supportive. My mom worked for a local doctor in town, and and uh, even my sister, who's two and a half years younger than me, she uh, was very supportive. Well, would go to the track. So we. Literally, I think the second or third year that we were racing, uh, the track that we went to first was in Westport, Indiana, about a half hour away. And then they moved the club to Columbus, to our hometown, to our local fairgrounds. And uh, my dad, I think, became president of the club three or four years or two years into us uh, being. So it, it was something that was close to home. We enjoyed it together as a family. Um, and it was, it was nice because I got to literally – it took about 15 minutes to drive to the, to the fairgrounds to race. And uh, the second year that I was involved in go-kart racing, I got the, the local Dairy Queen in town to sponsor me. My dad got him to sponsor me. But the coolest part of that to me was it was literally about a five-minute drive from the fairgrounds into town. And at the edge of town there uh, was where the, the local Dairy Queen was. Every night we'd bring about 15, 20 people in after the races. But – to me, the coolest part was I got to walk up to the counter with no money and get a free chocolate shake every Saturday night. <laughs> I was like a cool kid because I didn't have to pay for my chocolate shake at the end of the night. <laughs> That's living large, so, dude. Living large. <laughs> that was a big deal to me. I mean, for a 9, 10, 11-year-old kid, that was a big deal, not having to pay the dollar. I think it was a dollar and four cents or something uh, for, a, for a chocolate shake at that time. So I was, I was the man. 
Well, that that's cool because I it describes I on my note here I had Dairy Queen because you have always referenced. It seems like everything I've ever seen about you talked about. You always are loyal to that Dairy Queen operator, and I never really knew the whole story. So. You got free milkshakes on Friday nights. <laughs> I I still get free milkshakes from the same guy. So so literally the same family owns that Dairy Queen to this day, and the daughter daughter runs it, and uh, the father still. I mean, Bob used to sit there every day. You'd walk in there, and if he was walking around, he had a wet towel on his shoulder, and he was always wiping off. But uh, he doesn't get around quite as good as he used to. But uh, there's there's uh, a table that's kind Flyers Club, we call them, show up around lunchtime and a bunch of uh, old guys up around for lunch, sit around and BS with each other and give each other a hard time. So uh, he's he's there every day at lunch and hangs out, I think, till the school kids get there after school comes out. And, but literally, we I still race three-quarter midgets at that local fairgrounds uh, once a year or a couple times a year now. And since we took the series over, we got more races. But um, if we win the race, I take my trophy there to the Dairy Queen like I did when I was 9, 10, 11 years old and give him, my, give him the trophy, and he puts it up on the counter for display for the whole year. Oh, that's, that's outstanding. So let's just back up a little bit before the Dairy Queen. After your first yard carts or whatever they may have been as you started racing, what was the next progression? What did uh, I assume you won a lot of races in them yard carts or one, one well, or two races. What went on from there next? So the yard cart literally was just one that you just run around in your backyard. It's not one that's that's even legal to race. And then then once we got started in racing, I think the first time that that I actually left home and left the state of Indiana was to go run uh, the Grand National in Iowa, and I was sponsored by Comic Cart Sales in Greenfield, Indiana. That uh, Mark Dismore and his dad owned the company, and Mark at that time had been running super V's and, and, uh, you know, the Corvette series and this and that, and, and was a good race car driver. Uh, but helped the talent talk my dad into taking me to the grand nationals, which was asinine. We'd never went out out of the state to run anything, let alone the big race of the year. And, uh, so we show up in Oskaloosa, Iowa with one go-kart. Uh, we had about three spare tires, didn't even have a spare motor. Uh, but Dismore sent one with us uh, to have as a backup. And I remember my dad saying when we left, he said, if we have a problem with our putting this one on there. So it was like we were just carrying a motor around for nothing. But went out to, to Iowa and make the long story short, we were out there a whole week. And I think my main event uh, finished at like three in the morning. And by the time we got through tech and everything, it was about six in the morning and we had won the race and, and passed tech and, we're a national champion all of a sudden. Oh, wow. That, that's amazing to think that you went to, uh, as we say, went and raced against the big boys, the hitters at that time, and you came out on top. So now you're a champion in the go-kart series, and you're somebody at that point in that age. Well, what's the next progression? So I, I ran go-karts until I graduated high school. We, uh, we won another national championship in points in what they call the Manufacturer's Cup Series in WKA. Uh, that's running on road courses and was still sponsored by Dismore at the time. And so uh, ran those till I graduated high school and, and then got an opportunity to run what they call a three-quarter midget, which basically is like a full-size midget like you've seen on ESPN and you see it's a chili bowl. Uh, but it, a, a PQ midget's a little bit shorter, 
a little bit narrower and they run motorcycle engines in them, which are like back when I started, they were 750 CC motorcycle. And, uh, they'd cut the gearbox off of them and turn them sideways and run that line. And, and so it ran and drove just like a full size midget. So, so jumping around, I'm kind of going to jump forward for a second because of some of the things I've seen recently. I, I recently seen that they named a speedway after you, Tony Stewart Speedway. Is that where they run the three quarters at? Yeah, that's at my local fairgrounds. That was uh, I, the that was the first six races that I ran were in Westport, and then after that we moved to the the local fairgrounds, and that is the track that that they named after me. So uh, that was the last trip during the fair when I was there this year. It was a pretty big honor. My family was there, and everybody got to be there to see it. Well, that that's outstanding. Win, win the races, get the racetrack named after you. Now we're going to back back up. You, you you progressed on. You're in the three quarters. You're winning races yeah. there, and I, uh, next up, I, from... I had been in three quarters for a couple years, and um, I went to work for a friend of mine that had a, a record company, and he he got a DUI. They needed some help with records, so I went and lived with him. And I'd been hanging around a sprint car team for a while. And uh, basically, after just hanging around long, I finally got an opportunity to drive for the guy. And uh, my friend was also racing sprint cars that I was driving the tow truck for. But we... Uh, yeah, wait a second. Let me back up a second. You, you were driving a tow truck? What was this about? <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he, my buddy had two wreckers and... Uh, <laughs> Like I said, he got himself in a little bit of a bind and needed some help with a driver. So I went and stayed with him and his family. And so I literally lived with his his parents, him and his sister. I had a pager that I wore twenty four seven, and I lived out lived on a fold out couch bed for about six months. Oh, <laughs> you had a pager though. <laughs> yeah, and when that thing went off at four in the morning because somebody need, couldn't needed a jump start on their car, guess who got out of bed and went and did that? Yeah. So that was that was my job and and uh, helping out with my buddy there. But that was uh, uh, there's some. We could spend an hour talking about stories from driving a tow truck, some of the crazy stuff that happened when getting shot at and everything else. So it's uh, the record business isn't just nice and calm as you think it is, and everybody hates the record guy because he's got to come fix you when your stuff's broke down. But uh, it, it served its purpose. It helped down a friend of mine, and I'm, I've made some money doing it. Well, that's outstanding. So you're, you're driving a record, making a few bucks, got a place to stay. You're getting ready to sprint car race, or you have sprint car race at this point? I just started sprint car racing. So uh, in Indiana, there's two legendary paved ovals, and I think you've probably ran at both of them, actually. And one's uh, Winchester Speedway and one's Salem Speedway. Yeah. Uh, I went to a test session with the team and drove the car at Winchester. And so literally, I've never been in a sprint car in my entire life. And the first place this guy takes me is Winchester Speedway, <laughs> which is like the gnarliest track you can imagine for a pavement sprint car. Um, and, and I did did well enough that he decided. And the reason we went there is because the track we went to the very next day uh, was Salem Speedway for a Thursday night Thunder race on ESPN. So never been in a sprint car. Takes me to Winchester to test. The next day, national TV on ESPN. Uh, I missed the transfer spot by one in the heat race. And then in the B main, I also missed the transfer spot by one, but I got a lot of press coverage, which actually my buddy that I was driving the tow truck for, 
was furious because I got more airtime on ESPN that day than just in my first night didn't even make the show than he had got. So uh, the the couch bed, well, I wasn't going to get upgraded from the couch bed anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, what a great story so far. I mean, you start out in the mid or the go kart, you win your first deal. You go to Winchester for your first sprint car race. Like you say, it's one of the gnarliest racetracks, especially for those type of cars and uh, all that television coverage. Yeah, so from there, I guess it um, kind of went to, at the same time that I got the sprint car opportunity, like I said, I was still really good friends with Mark Bismore, and uh, a guy that had bought full midget that he had owned, uh, they owned an above-ground water tank company that, that serviced water tanks, and his son drove the car and was coming down a rope for lunch and got sliding down the rope too fast and got to where it got his hand so hot that he finally let go of the rope and he thought he was going to be okay, but it ended up shattering both of his ankles. Oh my gosh. And so then I get the phone call to drive this midget at, uh, at the Indianapolis speed room, which is where Thursday night basically started at. And, uh, so literally at the time that I started driving that full midget was the same time that Kenny Irwin jr. Was also starting in midget there as well. So Kenny and the rookies together, uh, ran for rookie of the year. It literally came down to the last race on the last night uh, of who was going to win rookie of the year championship. And uh, we ended up beating him, but but that was something that from there, I would say between the NASCAR, or not NASCAR, between the sprint car and, and getting the opportunity in the midget, it literally from there blew up. I mean, it, it, it got so crazy and so busy. Um, okay, stop right there. Okay, just for a second. We got to. We got to. Ta- we're going to take a break, Tony. Hang on. We're talking racing. We're talking. Take, we're talking tow trucks and all kinds of stuff with Tony Stewart. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Today's guest, the one and only Tony Stewart. We'll have more with Tony in just a second. The American Speed U.S. Nationals presented by Engine Pro. Special Memorial Day weekend event features many of the top pavement winged sprint car drivers from across the United States and Canada at the 3-8 mile Kalamazoo Speedway. Tune in on MAV TV Thursday, August 12th for Speed Sport Presents Must See Racing from Kalamazoo. Check your local listings for channel and time. Once again, I give you Mike Wallace. Well, thank you. And we're back with Tony Stewart. And as we took a break, we were talking about sprint car racing between tow truck driving, sleeping on the couch, and you're at Winchester. <laughs> Fast forward to where we're we at now. Uh, so we, we, we get our opportunity... Uh... Yeah, my back still hurts thinking about sleeping on that full-down couch, by the way. But, no, I, I, you know, it kind of all exploded for me in my career at that point. I mean, I was running basically anybody's race cars that I could drive at that time and uh, went out to, to to Phoenix, Arizona, the Copper Classic, which is really the biggest pavement race of the year uh, for the Silver Crown Series and the Midgets, and uh, ran second to Mike Bliss there, and I was, I was literally – at that time I was back in Rushville, Indiana and I was working at a machine shop for $5 an hour and was sitting at a drill press, uh, deburring inside a tubing that was coming out of a, a screw machine that gets cut off the links. Basically what we were making were the sleeves to go inside motor mounts and shock absorbers. So a uh, very monotonous and boring job, but, uh, 
paid the bills and the guy also uh, owned a race car. So whenever I needed to leave to go race, I, I got time off. But I remember on the red eye flying back because I had to work the next day. I was sitting there and, and it was simple math. I made $3,500 is what I got paid to run second at the Copper Classic. And I was like, how many $5 hours do I have to work to <laughs> make $3,500? And I quit my job that next week. So um, I, I literally said, hey, this is this is my leap of faith. And, um, you know, if I can sit there and truly make a living instead of just making a little bit of money here, if I can make enough money and I can go race enough to, to support myself, this is better than having to get up and, you know, drive through snow, snow banks and everything else to get out in the country to the shop to work every day. So um, that was kind of when the moment in my life changed. I was literally driving anything and everything I could drive whenever I could and uh, got to drive the same full-size midget that uh, Jeff Gordon drove, for the same owner, uh, two years after Jeff left it and uh got a got an opportunity with the potter family and at the end of 93 and in 94 we won our first usac national midget championship and uh, stayed on with them for the first couple races of the next season and then we parted ways but i got with legendary steve lewis from california that owned the white nine midgets and uh between him and glenn nibel and and willie bowles uh we ran and won all three championships with all three divisions the national midget national sprint and silver crown divisions and that was the triple crown that we won in 95. Um, but that that got us a cool opportunity to go to to australia to race which i'd never been out of the country to race in my life and i uh, got a chance to go over to australia for three weeks uh, and had a blast running midgets over there so it, it really started changing complexion at that time and, and everything got busier and busier. And obviously being the triple crown champ was, was something that, that we were really proud of. At that time. So in that time and era, I, I have to ask this, when you made the comment that you were driving anything that you could drive, what was that really what you were doing? I mean, were you the one making the opportunities for yourself to drive or was your dad helping you or, you know, in the day's world, you know, they, you had an agent or how did that work? Oh, back God, then? No. I wish I had an agent, but I, didn't <laughs> have, I could I could barely make enough money to pay attention, let alone to try to <laughs> survive. So, I mean, I was doing it all myself and, uh, you know, literally it was making phone calls to people and, and looking on the schedule. And, you know, I had a full time ride uh, for the for the USAC stuff, but I would look on our schedule and say, OK, well, we're going to race Friday here and Saturday here. Well, there let me see if there's a race Thursday on the way or Sunday on the way home. And, and that's how, that's how it all was happening. I, I was literally just picking anything and everything that I could run that, that, w that made sense. I wasn't just getting in, you know, piles of junk, but at the same time I'm building my career and, and wasn't able to get in the best rides at the time. But, you know, I was, I was just on that verge and, and in that time was just getting my opportunities in really good sprint cars and midgets and, uh, you know, but would still fill in when I could and had built enough of a, a reputation for myself that if there was openings, I could normally, if I had the availability on a date, I could normally find a decent ride to go run. Well, that's great. I mean, that's, that's so you just, everything you were doing in that time and era was strictly off the talent that you had and shown everybody how good you were. Yeah. And back then, I mean, and you were racing at the same time. I mean, back then, it wasn't about bringing a checkbook and buying a ride. Car owners looked for drivers that could go out and get the job done, and nobody was paying for rides. I mean, it was back in that day, 
you know, everybody owned their own cars and, and, uh, they were just trying to find the best drivers to drive them. And, and, and like I said, if I could get an opportunity to sneak away for a night that wasn't one of our main, um, you know, main series, uh, I could normally find somebody that had a decent car that, that would hire us to drive it. In that 90, early 90 eras, when you were getting all those opportunities and you won the triple crown and all, give me five names of guys who were the other guys other than Tony Stewart you had to compete against. Oh, God. Give me two um, names. Just two is fine. <laughs> well, like one of them that I mentioned that really was, I, I feel like we were parallel in a lot of this, was Kenny Irwin Jr. Um, and, and, I mean, I, I wish I wish we wouldn't have lost Kenny at Loudoun uh, because Kenny was a guy that, that have won just as many championships as I did. I mean, he, he had the talent, but Kenny was really, was really pivotal, I felt like, in my career because Kenny made me a better driver. I mean, he made me push myself harder. Uh, you, and if Kenny was at the track, there was there was no there were no easy nights winning if you were going to win against Kenny. And it wasn't because he was hard to race against; he was great to race with. I mean, he, he had uh, you know he would race you extremely hard, but he'd race you with respect. And occasionally, one or both of us would get over the edge and, and try too hard and would get into each other, but we kind of created that rivalry because that it's, you know, we'd overstep the bounds and try too hard and get into each other or wreck each other on accident. And, but that's how hard we pushed each other. Um, and it wasn't, it, we didn't notice it at the time what we were doing, but I mean, we were pushing the other to be better. You know, he made me a better racer. And I'd like to think that I made him better too, but it was, uh, it was fun racing with Kenny. Uh, Stevie, Stevie Reeves was big in the midgets at the time. Andy Michener, uh, Doug Coletta, who's now HRA, was really big in the sprint car side, and that's who we had to race against for the championship. Um, you had guys like Dave Darlin, Jack Hewitt, Tony Elliott, um, a lot of guys that, that ran all three divisions but didn't race for points in all three divisions. So, so is there as many stories about Jack Hewitt out there that I hear about just how how good he was, how crazy he is, and stuff like that? Yes, and they're, yeah. they're, if you hear any kind of a Jack Hewitt story, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you got a 98% chance that it's true. So <laughs> there's no way in hell that guy did, did that. Oh, he probably did. He did, probably did. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, now we've we've won the triple crown. Where uh, you know you're getting hired, you're you're picking up the phone, getting every opportunity you want to to run sprint cars, midgets. Then where do we go? So like I mentioned, I went to, at the end of 95, after the round, I had went to uh, Australia. And what he didn't didn't mention during the 94 season was a guy named Lauren Rainier, uh started following me. And uh, Lauren Rainier is the son of the famous Harry Rainier, who owned Calumet Farms for a long time in Kentucky and was in horse racing. But most notably, he was the guy that owned the black and silver 28 car in the NASCAR cup series that buddy Baker drove. And then the Hardy's 28 car that Kale Yarbrough drove and won the Daytona 500 in. So his son, Lauren was scouting me and coming to the races. And in the fall of the five, while we were in for the triple crown, we were working on a NASCAR deal at the same time on the IndyCar side, Tony George was trying to create a oval series and trying to get, give opportunities to guys like myself running 
open wheel cars to to get into IndyCar, and he created the IRL series. So literally, while I was in Australia, I signed my first NASCAR contract with the Rainier family. The day that I got home from Australia, which was the 2nd of January, I got a phone call from Kerry Agajanian, who at that time had just started managing me at the end of the 94 season. And uh, was my first attorney, and he'd read over contracts and this and that. But uh, we didn't have to do a lot of work back then. There wasn't a lot for him to have to do. But the great thing was Harry, or not Harry, but uh, Kerry Agajanian called me when I landed from Australia, I'd only been home two hours. And he goes, you have to be on the next flight in the morning to go to Orlando, Florida. I carry, I, I just got off the plane. It's four in the afternoon. I'm asleep because I'm, I'm messed up because of the time change. And you're now telling me I got to be on the first flight. He goes, you're going to test an Indy car in Orlando in two days. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't, unfortunately I didn't sleep the rest of the day. Um, had, had you ever been in an Indy car? Had you ever sat down in one even? I had. I'd actually tested for A.J. Foyt in the fall of 95 um, but and and was getting offered the what I'd been working with the Rainier family, and they were okay letting me run the Indy car and fill in the races around the Indy car races to get started. A.J., on the other hand, did not. This is my all-time hero, A.J. Foyt, would not let me drive in nascar he goes you're either driving for me or you're not driving anything <laughs> and i had been getting closer to the Rainier family and we were close to getting a deal done and uh so i wasn't going to bail on that opportunity to even though i wanted to drive the indy car for aj uh, i just was too loyal to the Rainier family and wasn't going to bail on that opportunity so literally signed my contract while i was in australia then get home get a call that I'm going to go drive an Indy car test for an Indy car team for team Menard. And, uh, two days later with the, at Disney speedway there, uh, that now is not a racetrack anymore, but, um, got an opportunity to, to, to test for team Menard and literally on a cocktail map and signed my first contract that was drawn out and Carrie was there. Uh, but literally we signed the contract, uh, on a cocktail napkin for the event. You know, what's really funny about that, or coincidental, you talk about cocktail napkins. They must be popular in Florida, because when I had the opportunity to drive for James Finch in the Miccosukee Indian tribe, we signed a contract on a cocktail napkin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, no, never never discount the value of a, of a cocktail napkin. <laughs> yeah. So you, you did that test, you signed a contractual agreement, and... Then what? We start start full time IndyCar racing at that point. Yeah, at, the, at that time in '96, uh, they only had five races on the schedule that year, and it was what they what they tried to do for their championship was have an offset season, is what they tried that first year. And so it went. Disney World was the first race, Phoenix, then Indy, and after the third race at, at Indy every year, they wanted the championship to be decided at the Indy 500. So it was an offset season, but, um, you know, we ran second at Disney there. We, we led laps Orlando or I'm sorry, Phoenix when we were there. And then, uh, you know, because we, the fatality of a crash with my teammate, Scott Brayton, uh, I got to start on the pole of Indy 500 my first year and led the first 44 laps and blew a motor and, and really made a name for myself. Mac, back up right there for a second. We're going to come to a break in a few moments here. You start on the pole 
for the Indy 500. Yeah. Can, can you describe that? Yeah, one of the most nerve-wracking experiences of your life. I mean, it's you, when you practice there, there's there's people around, but when you get there on race day and that facility has as many fans as it had that year, I the, the whole racetrack looked different. Like, literally, all the sea of people that were down both sides of the front stretch and then through the first turn, there was there were more people there than we had seen at any point during practice and qualifying. And literally, the racetrack looked different. It looked narrower. So uh, it took a couple laps to get used to the feel of having all those people there. But, you know, when you're sitting there, and, and for the most part, majority of the time, the bleachers were empty. It, it, it had a look to it, a particular look. Now, all of a sudden, you put a sea of people in there, and they have different colored shirts on and this and that. You would not think that would make a difference, but it was huge. Well, that's incredible. We're going to take this to a break here, and we're going to come back and uh, take it from the front row of the Indy 500 and move forward. We're talking to Tony Stewart. These are great stories. This is Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back. It's Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. We are on the Speed Sport Podcast Network and NASCAR Digital Media. More with Tony Stewart in just a second. Zero to 60 in less than a second seems unrealistic, right? Not on the iRacers download. Taylor Burris and Justin Prince take you behind the scenes of the iRacing world with drivers from the eNASCAR Coca-Cola iRacing Series, the Porsche Tag Heuer Series, and more. Plus news and updates you'll only find here. The latest episodes of Available now on the Speedsport Podcast Network, NASCAR Digital Media, and your favorite podcast platforms. Take it away, Mike Wallace. Well, we're back with Tony Stewart, and we're running out of time, so we got to speed everything up. Tony, when we took the break, you would give us the experience of sitting on the front row at the Indy 500, all these people there, and you've run that race, and now where are we at? Well, it, you know, I, you sit there and like we talked about, it, the the whole view of the stands is totally different. That I've got my whole family there. I mean, it, to us, this was the culmination of my career, and, and this, you know, we thought, man, this is it. This is this is this is all the bigger this is ever going to get, and that's okay because we've made it to the top. But um, obviously, you know, we got through our IndyCar career in three years and and won an IRL championship in '97. Um, at that time, I had, in 97, I'd switched from the Rainier family. Uh, they went a different direction on their NASCAR program, and, and uh, I got hired by Joe Gibbs. And uh, so I, I ran his, I ran Bobby Labonte's Bush car in 97 and, and 98, and then got my opportunity to run the Cup Series full-time in 99. And at the end of 98, that was the end of my D-car career. So, you know, and I'm surprised this, this has been kind of a cool deal because I'm very surprised that I've remembered all this stuff <laughs> with all the crashes that guys like you and I've had in our career before they had soft walls. There's a lot of these things that, that I don't remember, but it's, uh, you know, that's the cool part about this being able to, to relive a lot of these moments and remember the stuff that, uh, has happened. I mean, we, we could sit here for, for, probably a solid week and talk about all the cool stories of everything that we've talked about. There's all these little cool stories that surround all those different times and different races that, that make them substantial. But uh, to, to get my opportunity to get to NASCAR there finally with Gibbs and, uh, you know, be Bobby Labonte's teammate and met this guy uh, that, that was pretty fair in a race car and a guy named Mike Wallace that hung around. And <laughs> <laughs> We're somewhat buddies with him during that time as well. <laughs> 
Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear you talk about the uh, not remembering a few things now and then because I thought it was just me. I thought I was going to be this poor guy that lost his memory because of those non-softballs. But, uh, yeah, you you are, uh, if it's okay for me to say, because I can, we're friends. You're, you're, you're a friend of mine, and I admire everything you've done and continue to do. So you've at this time, you've now got your opportunity with Joe Gibbs. You are a household name in the motorsports world. And you're winning races and just fast forward. We got five minutes to talk. Give me, give me the, the lowdown from there. Well, I think from that standpoint, the, the rest is easy to see in, in, in the history books. But I, I think there's one thing that I, I want to, to tell in this last five minutes is I remember when I, when I was in my early stages and middle stages of NASCAR, I mean, people saw the anger that I used to have and the frustration and, and it literally was all motivated by all I cared about was winning races and, and trying to win championships. I didn't care about anything else. I didn't care about anything else that was going on in my life. I didn't care about, uh, you know, I stayed in touch with my family obviously, but literally everything that I did was motivated by wanting to win races and win championships and the etiquette of how I was taught by Dale senior and, and Rusty Wallace and Dale Jarrett, Mark Martin, and all the guys that to me were the, the big names in NASCAR to, to learn all that etiquette and race under that etiquette. I mean, I was, but, but I, I remember I was just really frustrated and, and I don't even remember who it was <clears throat> that, that ended up bringing you over, but Mike came and sat down with me and, and you came and sat down with me at my motorhome at Daytona. And you looked me square in the eye. We were sitting in chairs outside. And you and I had never, we had said hi in passing and been in a couple conversations together with other people. But we'd never sat down one-on-one. And the one thing, and as much as I forgot things because of concussions, I will never, ever forget this moment. And when Mike Wallace sat down in that chair and looked me in the eye and he said, what are you mad about? And I had to stop in my head i had to sit there and literally stop in my head and go i'm not sure what i'm mad about and what am i so mad about and mike told me a, a personal story that uh what was very traumatic in his life and something that goes that's that's the kind of things that you need to be upset about and and i didn't have anything even remotely close to to that story that you told me and and it really it really changed me and it and it wasn't overnight it wasn't like from there on it it flipped the switch and my life got easier and i wasn't frustrated with anything but to this day i have never forgot that meeting that you and i had outside in the lawn chairs where you said what are you so mad about you've got everything going in your life right now what are you so mad about and i never i in a million years, I, I would never would have got to that the rest of my life if it wasn't for that conversation of having you sit there and say, kind of, kind of grab me by the shoulders and shaking me like, what are you mad about? And, and I couldn't figure it out. And it took me years and years to get to the spot that I am now uh, to, to realize that there are, there's a lot of things in life that aren't going to happen the way you want, that aren't going to be perfect. Uh, but that was that was a very big life changing moment for me was was that day that you sat there and I, I I tell you this numerous times but again thank you for that moment because that literally has shaped the direction the rest of my life has gone and like I said it wasn't overnight it didn't change you know in 24 hours it took years to get to it and to truly understand it and and 
really implement it in my life, but I'm out in Lake Havasu City, Arizona today with my fiance. I'm getting married this fall to, to a wonderful woman that uh, has the ability to control me, which uh, is hard to do, but she keeps me under control. Uh, a lot of that's because of this, the, that conversation we had and the direction that I chose in my life to try to understand why am I so mad about things that I can't control and and uh, you know when I learned to just live life and and start enjoying life, great things started happening. Well, thank you. And uh, as I said earlier, I can let's friend. That's what you and I are. Uh, that particular mm-hmm. night, just if I may, uh, that evening after Tony and I spoke that day, I fortunately won the the race at Daytona. <laughs> And the first person in Victory Lane, other than my family, I turned around and there he stood. And so I thank you so much for that. You, you, we had a great day together there. A lot of things changed in our life at that particular time, but uh, you highlighted on it. I'm, uh, we, we know who you are. We knew the background. Now I'm thrilled to death with that and with the story you just told. But I, I the, the happy place of your life right now. Uh, you had mentioned that you're engaged, and I'm so excited for you. Really happy. And uh, in two minutes, tell us what Tony Stewart's doing now. And I would like to add, you know, you, you, you added one more championship to your resume with your new SRX schedule this year. That was exciting. A lot of people enjoyed watching that. And, uh, you know, where's that stand? And um, I'm super proud of that. I, you know, the SRX thing, that, that project with Ray Evernham and, and George Pine and Sandy, uh, just a, a great group of people to work with and, and being a part of helping revive what was the old IROC series. Uh, and, and like you mentioned, getting to win the championship this year, we, we had six great racetracks and, and six great races. And I was fortunate enough to win the championship, but the significance to me of what makes it so special uh, is the fact that I won the last IROC championship. And, and I have the car that I won the, that championship with because of, we knew the series was going away, so I, I bought the. I told Jay Signori before the race started. I said, if I win the race at the end of the day here, I want to buy this car exactly the way it is. So, so Jay sold me that car, and then we fast forward to this year at Nashville, and I was standing on the stage. And when Ray handed me the trophy, I told Ray, I said, Ray, I want the car that I just won the championship. I want to buy it because I want to put it with the I, the IROC championship car. So to have those two together, and and you know have. 12 great drivers with 12 different backgrounds and uh, everything that, that we put together. I'm really, really proud of that. But it's uh, my life is quite a bit. I mean, I haven't raced the race car in probably over three months now. I've been uh, going to every NHRA race with Leah Pruitt, who's my fiance. And uh, it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. You know, I, I never would just come out to Arizona and hang out like I had. But, um, you know, we we have a lot of fun together. We play hard together. We race hard together, and um, like I said, she's one that finally uh, has learned how to how to control me, so to speak, to the best of her ability. Let's say. Outstanding. Well, Tony, thank you so much for taking your time and sharing with our listeners a little background of your life. And uh, those are great stories, Tony. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having us, and. Uh, and a year from now, as as you get to be such a big name now in the in the broadcasting industry, a year from now when you're like award winning and all that, don't forget me. A year from now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love it. Hey, I, I want to. I was going to ask this earlier, and I kind of lost track of it, but I, I don't want to end on this. 
what uh, you you've had numerous nicknames in your career, uh, the Columbus Comet, the Rockville, Rushville Rocket, Smoke. What's what's the one that you like the most? I think Smoke. I mean, and the, the funny thing is, everybody thinks that it's that the origin of it's different than what it is. I mean, it, it actually came from that very first sprint car team that I drove for. We were at IRP one night, and <clears throat> I had contact with somebody on the front stretch and I spun through the infield in turn one. And, uh, he goes, man, you about smoked those holes. So, he just <laughs> smoke. so all the open wheel guys knew me as smoke. And then I went to IndyCar and team Menard, and, and we had unbelievably fast motors, but sometimes they didn't always stay together. And, uh, so when we, we blew a lot of motors, so they, the IndyCar community thought this smoke was because of the, the motors blowing. But it carried all the way over to the, the Cup Series, which, which I thought was cool right up to the point that I have had Steve Addington as a crew chief, and Steve's nickname is Smoke. So when somebody would say Smoke, both of us would turn our heads. We'd be standing together working on a car, and, and somebody would say Smoke, and both of us would turn our heads, and then we'd start laughing, not knowing who they were talking to. There you go. Well, we've had a great you know time. The rest of the story. The rest of the story. <laughs> so we've, we've just had a great conversation with Toke Smoke, Tony Stewart. Yep. And um, Tony, congratulations, everything. Thanks for uh, coming on. And uh, yeah, when I'm big time and we got Jeff and I got all these Emmy Awards around, we still expect you to come back and join us. Yeah, I, I don't want to get forgotten. Back on the All right, y'all. Reminder this is a weekly series, too, so we'll have more next week. This is Fast Car to NASCAR with Dr. Mike Wallace <laughs> <laughs> on the Speed Sport Podcast Network and NASCAR Digital Media.